Hi FM presents South African politics and news with the South African Institute of Race Relations. The IRR show, independent, relevant and real, is hosted by Sarah Gon every Tuesday morning from 9 to 10, promoting life, liberty and property rights. Good morning, everybody. And in case you're wondering why it's still a bit on the cool side with this latest cold front, I have to tell you, I received a photograph from my son from the hills around or the mountains around Paul, you know, Paul near Cape Town. And it was a photograph of him in knee deep snow, not a sprinkling of snow or a light covering of snow, but knee deep in snow. So we shouldn't at all be surprised. And these things do happen at this time of the year. Just to have a quick look at some things. Um, news pointed out that uh, the, the final American troops have left uh, Afghanistan and the the tragedy that has befallen that country and befallen the people in that country has been discussed at length and who's responsible for it and was it a, where was it a success, was it a success at all, was it all failure. Um, there, are, there is much discussion and I'm sure many articles and books to be written on that. But but certainly what caught my attention was the arsenal of American military equipment that has essentially been abandoned to the uh, to the Taliban, and it's in the region of things like 65 aircraft, um, 109 helicopters, 33 of which are the famous Black Hawk helicopters. There are over 20,000 Humvees which travel which carry uh, troops. Minesweepers, armored personnel carriers, 42,000 pickup trucks, 64,000 machine guns, uh, 8,000 trucks, 162,000 radios, and 358,000 assault rifles. Uh, there are also grenades and grenade launchers and artillery pieces and pistols, and it goes on forever. Now, while the Taliban per se may not have the requisite skills to deal with the equipment that flies, uh, presumably they could either uh, get assistance from, say, Pakistan or other allies in the region who do know how to fly planes should they decide they need them, or they could sell them off and uh, could end up with a not inconsiderable arms trade. Uh, I mean, their success, after all, was achieved with minimal, relatively speaking, minimal weaponry. So this is, a, by all accounts, a real, uh, a real haul, a real cash. So the the cost, the the sheer cost of what the Americans left behind is 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 unfathomable. Anyway, a funny little news item that I came across is that we have seen the last amount of unleaded petrol used. There is no unleaded petrol anywhere in the world. I think the last. Uh, few tank loads uh, were used in Algeria. The UN has has made sure that it's been used, worn down, no longer available, and there goes unleaded petrol. Now, Hi FM, your station of choice since 2008. I've been intrigued by the fact that the ANC cannot afford to pay its staff for the third month in a row. And that they have now embarked, the staff have now embarked on a wildcat strike in protest against the failure to be paid. There are a whole number of dimensions to this, but most interesting was a letter 
written to their bosses essentially to say that they've you know they've worked very hard they've been very loyal they've been treated very badly and if uh, things don't change and don't improve they will start leaking all sorts of salacious stuff to the press um i imagine they could leak all sorts of salacious stuff which would be fun but the most uh, interesting if 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 ironic element of all this is they have indicated that they being dedicated hard working employees they have committed themselves to the program of the national democratic revolution and they wonder why the anc has run out of money now for those who may not remember the national democratic revolution is a concept that vladimir lenin came up with where essentially you use the the concept and the benefits of capitalism or the capitalist the existing capitalist state to gradually over time move increasingly towards a socialist state and then on to communism and the ANC has been committed to this process for decades and certainly made their intentions very clear in the late 90s when they were already in government now people like the IRR have always said that uh, a socialist state is the last thing one needs on earth because it is likely if not absolutely guaranteed to fail it is economically counterintuitive and that the that everyone was likely to be better or worse off as a result and the problem is you now have all these ANC employees saying that they are better worse off as a result of without realizing it pursuing the national democratic revolution so be careful what you wish for it might well come back to bite you in the bum the other thing i would like to talk about briefly is the lady who was assassinated the financial manager at the Gauteng Health Department Babita Daya Karan she uncovered 332 million rands worth of PPE fraud now if you think about it this is fraud that will have occurred in the last 18 months and in fact it's probably occurred in the last in the first 6 months of the of the pandemic now there there was in his typical style a fairly oleaginous letter from the president's desk yesterday in which he said that people like uh, like uh, Ms Deo Karan were heroes that uh, they took huge risks in uncovering all this or uh, all this corruption and they they were what kept the uh, the country honest and democracy saved democracy and he he was surmising that if more if more needs to be done to legislate improvements to the protection of whistleblowers and people and and witnesses in general to criminal action we must do so and we must all work together now if there are two things i think that really drive me nuts about our president first of all it's the tendency to want to legislate when all else fails um so what effectively this government's good at is legislating and not implementing and managing so we can have as much legislation as we like for as long as we like and as in comprehensive as we like but if it is not properly managed and implemented it is quite irrelevant and i would suggest that in the respect of whistleblowers and witnesses it's less what is on paper than what the 
responsible authorities such as the police and the NPA and similar organizations actually do to put in place working programs. Now, as, as uh, our president says, you cannot force someone to go into witness protection uh, or anything of that nature. And certainly that is true, and, and people must take the risk as they find it. But bear in mind that a lot of, a lot of criminal casework case happens slowly and things get to court slowly and to expect people to stay in things like witness protection for months and maybe even years on end is in effect unrealistic. So, and we don't know what the situation was with Ms. Diokaran about asking for protection or seeking it. I haven't seen anything in relation to that. But then the, the, the cherry on the top is when the president says we must work together. If I hear him say that one more time, I think I will go and hang myself from the nearest tree. We mustn't work together. We have voted, or some of us have voted, a government into power whose job is to do things on our behalf and for our benefit. It is not for us constantly to work together. First of all, that's not the purpose of government. And secondly, what is it we're supposed to do in trying to work together? So pardon me if I feel a bit cynical once again with our president and, and his limp-wristed approach to things. It's actually, I find it, it, it pathetic because this is the tone of, of much of what comes off his desk every Monday morning is this sort of things are bad. There's a sense of being, of distancing the ANC from what is bad and then saying we must all work together. And it's, if they can't, take the heat, they must then get out of the kitchen. You've probably also been uh, advised of the new strain of COVID-19, the new variant, which the there's a lot being still investigated, but as I understand it, it it is much like our B variant, a bit more uh, perhaps catchy and... uh, you know, it'll it'll get out faster and, and quicker, but not much is is not much advice can be given on that other than our people, our people, our scientists are keeping an eye on it, and we our scientists do seem to be fairly ahead of the fairly ahead of the curve because although it was first noted in South Africa, it wasn't necessarily only originated in South Africa and then spread elsewhere, but it has been picked up in a number of other countries. And I think that's probably kudos to our scientific uh, community for for staying in touch and, and being aware of these things. Makes it clear that this is not something that is going to go away. It is something we're going to have to live with and adapt to. And probably the two countries that need to understand that best at the moment are New Zealand and Australia which are locking down, if anyone sort of says boo to them. Um, I don't know how both countries can continue to function when you lock down for one infected person in Auckland and 100 infected people in, in New South Wales. It seems like, I may be completely ignorant on this, but it seems like you're basically heading off the inevitable. It's, it's going to catch up with you eventually. So that's... a. Uh, that's kind of the little things, well, the little things that are in the news at the moment. I just want to make a, th- a thought suddenly occur to me that assassinations are not, of, of witnesses are not new. So we have a good 
solid history of assassinating the people we don't want to to snitch on us. Hi FM, one hundred and one point nine megahertz of life. I would like to introduce you to our guest, who is journalist and columnist extraordinaire, and clearly must be because he writes for the Daily Friend. Welcome, Eva Fechter. Thank you. Thank you for having me on the show, Sarah. No, my pleasure. Eva, you have this knack of getting into what some people consider controversial issues, and you wrote an article for us uh, towards the end of last week about not looking the perhaps the gift horse of nuclear energy in the mouth, um, particularly as the Minister of uh, Mineral Resources and Energy, uh, Gwede Mantashe, has now decided to put into the mix uh, a possible 2,400 megawatts of power from a nuclear plant, which uh, it hopes to be built in time to start taking over some of the uh, some of the work from aging coal stations that are becoming unreliable and unstable. Why do you say that uh, this is something we should welcome, not uh, not fear? Look, I've always been a great fan of, of nuclear energy. You know, whenever I sort of have this this view of the futuristic world. Um, it's always a world in which energy is clean and cheap and, and reliable. Um, and the only way to really do that is with, with nuclear energy. Um, it, it's got so many benefits over just about any other form of energy um, that it really would be, um, it would be stupid to ignore it. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not saying that you use only nuclear energy, obviously, but you know, there needs to be a mix um, uh, to, 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 create a competitive and, and, and efficient uh, energy system. Mm. Uh, but we really shouldn't be ignoring nuclear. And, and sadly, I think the world has been, um, mm. and, and often for very, very uh, fallacious reasons. Mm. Um, perhaps I'll get you the example of, uh, and this will delve into the, into the reasons, but um, with the Fukushima um, disaster of a few years ago, Germany's immediate reaction was to was to shut down its nuclear resources and move uh, move away from it move into uh, renewable energy and it's it ended up relying on renewable energy and when that fails it buys nuclear energy from France and coal energy from Poland surely this is completely ask about face. I mean, it's almost like it's almost going backwards 20 or 30 years instead of going forward into into a cleaner, more manageable, more reliable nuclear program. I mean, sorry, energy program. No, no I mean, that that decision made absolutely no sense to me. And, and the consequences have been higher electricity prices in Germany. Um, Germany has got the second highest electricity prices in Europe, um, aside from Denmark, which is heavily reliant on wind energy. Um it also increased Germany's use of coal, and not just any coal, uh, brown coal, which is mm. which is the really awful stuff. Um, mm. You know, it's it's, the, it's probably the worst source of energy we have on the planet. Um, so so it's it's done. It's had so many contrary effects, um, and Germany is in a lucky position because it is surrounded by by countries that produce a lot of energy. Mm. So it could sell excess energy to other countries, and it can buy uh, energy from other countries when its own renewable energy isn't isn't sufficient mm. so it's it's in an ideal position to to do to rely on renewables and yet it ends up with with unreliable power that is that is very very expensive mm. um i i wondered and whether so much of the 
um, aggro or antipathy towards nuclear energy is 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 a purely emotional one that is based on a vision a of atomic bombs and b of the fact that there's no understanding of the difference between um, n- nuclear nuclear armaments and nuclear energy for for consumer consumption yeah that is it's long term that's exactly the problem that, that there was a you know nuclear had a huge image problem because mm. the first time anyone encountered nuclear um, was with you know Hiroshima and, and Nagasaki with the bombs they you know so people are terrified of radiation um, when when they really shouldn't be you know there's radiation all around us all the time it's it's a, it's it's a natural thing in in uh, you know around the world the sun gives us nuclear radiation there's cosmic radiation there's uh, radiation in our own bodies there's radiation in the rocks and soil the bricks around us one of the biggest sources of radiation exposure is literally the house you live in mm-hmm. um, you know and and yet people are terrified of of radiation whereas low levels of radiation are actually perfectly normal mm-hmm. and then what they forget is that for example a coal-fired power station releases probably about a hundred times more radiation into the environment than a nuclear power station would do mm-hmm. um, and it spreads that in the form of fly ash which is actually dangerous because now you're now you're inhaling these, these radioactive particles so the, the whole fear of, of nuclear energy and, and the fear of radiation is really quite irrational. Mm. It, it, I mean, uh, there was an irony because I, I see that uh, they've been looking at uh, um, building the station in Tastepunt, which in Tastepunt, which is near Rich, uh, which is near um, Jeffreys Bay. And they had uh, public participation meetings on it, and there, there were clearly a lot of groupings that uh, were, were opposed to nuke- were opposed to the building of nuclear, which I suppose people would have different reasons for doing so. But I mean, it's particularly interesting you talk about brown coal when you you have a, a death rates from energy production per terawatt hour. You've got a, a graph on your article, which has new. Nuclear deaths in the same region as wind, hydropower, and solar, um, minuscule compared to deaths caused by brown coal, coal, and oil. So, w- w- what is it about that? Is it is it just you you just not getting beyond a certain image belief that there's there's the ev- evidence, there's the proof of how beneficial. Uh, nuclear can be, and yet it it just doesn't seem to hold any sway. Um, no. People talk people talk about the radiation of the plants in the area and the crops and the soil, etc. No, I mean, look, the, there's very very few incidents that have really released significant amounts of radiation into into the surrounding environment. Uh, Chernobyl is really the only one. Mm. Um, even Fukushima. Uh, there's one person, actually a worker at Fukushima, who died of radiation exposure eight years later. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, that was the only radiation casualty. Um, the evacuation around Fukushima actually killed about 1,500 people. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, people don't talk about that. Uh, that that it, it was funny enough, process, it, it, it was the fear of radiation that killed people, not the radiation itself. Yeah. But, you know, judging the nuclear industry by something like Chernobyl or even Fukushima, it's a bit like judging the jet airline industry by by the safety record of the original de Havilland Comet. Mm. You know, mm. um, I don't know if you remember the story. They had these square windows and they ended up with metal fatigue and, yeah. <laughs> uh, fall, and, and literally falling out the sky, you know, disintegrating mm. in the air. And everyone got terrified of, of flying uh, passenger jets. 
you know, oh, that lasted about 10 years and they developed, they, they developed solutions and then developed new jets and the jet airline industry is perfectly safe now. Um, you can't judge something by, by what happened at, at Chernobyl, for example. Modern nuclear reactors, you know, modern reactor designs, modern safety practices in the modern world, um, it, it is simply not plausible that something mm. like that could ever happen again. Um, what, what are the downsides of nuclear? There are a few. One is that it could, it's, it's expensive. It's expensive up front. Mm. Um, it is not expensive uh, to produce, though. You know, if you look at uh, ESCOM's um, annual reports, uh, their comparison of the primary energy unit cost of various generation car- uh, categories, they have they pay about four rand uh, per megawatt hour for coal. Mm-hmm. They pay only about a rand for nuclear energy from Kuburg. Mm-hmm. Right. And if you then get to the IPPs, especially the renewable ones, they, they end up paying about 22 rand uh, per unit per megawatt hour for uh, renewable energy. Mm. Right? So they're paying far, far more for renewables than they pay for coal, and they pay about four times more for coal than they pay for nuclear. The nuclear can, is by far the cheapest. Can, can I just ask you something? Because it's something you hear all the time from those who, who uh, support and, and propose renewable energy. Is they, they, You keep hearing them say it's getting cheaper all the time. Now, I would have thought that probably the construction of it is getting cheaper all the time. Um as these things do, it's, it's again technical technical advance. But from what from what you've clearly said, the actual the, the cost of the electricity produced is expensive. And as I understand it, or am I missing something? It's unreliable. So it it relies on other forms of energy being fe- being fed onto the to the grid to make up for the periods of let's say uh, energy absence because of a lack of wind or a lack of sunshine. Is. You know, when you see these headlines that say uh, renewables are now cheaper than coal, um, that, that comes with a few caveats. It's it's actually quite complicated to compare different energy forms and their costs. Uh, now, the first thing you need to recognize is that what they're comparing is not um, renewables compared to existing coal, because existing coal is absolutely cheaper than any renewables that you could put onto the grid. They're comparing new build. Mm-hmm. So they're saying, mm-hmm. they're saying, would it be cheaper to build a new coal-fired power station of 4,000 giga, uh, 4,000 uh, megawatts? Yeah. Or would it be cheaper to build 4,000 megawatts worth of solar panels or, mm. or wind farms? Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and then it's arguable that building those wind farms would actually be cheaper. And, uh, you know, initially the energy produced from those wind farms at the gate would be cheaper. Mm. But you're ignoring a few things. Right? You're ignoring uh, the intermittency of renewables. Mm-hmm. Which means you need backups. Yeah. And you either need, so you either need to duplicate your renewable energy infrastructure in a geographically separate location. Mm-hmm. So that if the wind doesn't blow in one place, at least it blows on your other wind farms. Mm-hmm. Uh, or you need something like gas or something to back it up. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't count that. They, they also don't count, um, the, the cost of connecting the stuff to the grid. Mm. Uh, if you have a one big, uh, power station, it's much cheaper to connect that to the grid than to try and connect 40 different 100 megawatt renewable plants that are all stuck out in the, in the, in the Bundus, in the Karoo, um, you know, at, at trying, trying to connect that to the grid. So there's a whole lot of costs that actually aren't um, included mm. in, in, the, in the very simplistic, um, naive comparison that says, oh, renewables are now cheaper than new coal bulbs. Mm. Um, and the same goes for nuclear, of course. Nuclear, 
you generally build one big plant. It's generally already close to the grid. Um, you know, and, and building one grid connection is, is, is fairly inexpensive. Yeah. Whereas to build 20 grid connections or 40 grid connections for solar farms and wind farms um, becomes a big problem for ESCOM. Well, in fact, there was a, there's a, there was a little article in, uh, in, in, in Business Day, that I think it might have been yesterday or over the weekend, that said that despite having the best solar resources in the world and good wind potential, no, fu- no further renewable energy projects can be connected in the Northern Cape as the provincial power grid is full and stretched to its limit, according to ESCOM. And, I mean, isn't this a sort of sort of relatively small example, but an example nonetheless of some of the problems, that well, exactly those thing. problems? You know, you're, you're going to need to re- rebuild almost your entire grid because remember that our grid was sort of built on the principle that everything is centered around the coal fields of Mpumalanga mm. and, and it would sort of, the power generated would radiate away from there, you know, and you'd have a few big power stations elsewhere on the grid to balance things. Kuburg is a very important one um, in that respect uh, to balance the grid so you don't end up sending too much power from Gauteng to the Cape. Mm-hmm. But but that's sort of the you know the Northern Cape receives electricity. That's what the grid was built for. Right? Mm. It was never built to generate electricity in the mm. Northern Cape and send it back elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, so so yeah, you have huge problems in trying to connect those those sort of projects to the grid. Because yeah. as as I understand, I mean, part of the problem with the, with the size of the grid is also the Northern Cape is not a is not a big manufacture. It doesn't have big manufacturing uh, processes and plants. Uh, it, the, the business is not there to consume the energy, so it's no, not. Exactly. So it's you not a priority. You know, you got to keep you got to keep the lights on at the curio shop at the big hall in Kimberley, but that's mm. that's pretty much what the Northern Cape consumes. <laughs> I'm sure they would feel that there are other important bits. This. <laughs> well, yeah, okay. There's a, there's, a, there's, a fish, there's a fishery somewhere somewhere near Springbok that, yes. that, also, needs, that also needs electricity. But, I mean, one of the things that the opponents of the building at uh, Tastepunt, building the uh, uh, nuclear uh, nuclear power station, is that most of them complain that the uh, uh, environmental impact assessments and other such and a variety of other um, issues that have to be considered and uh, reported on before any such uh, before anything is put out to tender is that this work was done five years ago. Now, would that necessarily be too long ago to now be of any relevance, or and would they have to start? Would they have to start again, or is it not a long time in in the scheme of these things? Well, I mean, why would why would an environmental impact assessment from five years ago suddenly become invalid? Mm. Um, I mean, has the environment changed at Tastepunt? Is there anything that has significantly changed in that area to to make those those environmental impact assessments invalid? Um, You know, look. The tactics of, of, of uh, especially environmentalists who oppose these sort of de- development projects um, are, are all the same. They always go after the environmental impact assessments. They, they take them to court. They challenge them on technicalities. Mm-hmm. Uh, they sometimes win on technicalities. Mm-hmm. You know, our courts, our courts are fairly are, are fairly strict on these sort mm-hmm. of things. So, so there's a lot of actual um, uh, protection and, 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 and safeguards. That's built into the process. Um, you know, we've seen that with shale gas, that, that there were technical issues around the legislation mm. um, that needed to be resolved before any sort of exploration permits could be issued. Mm. So no. I, wouldn't wa- I wouldn't worry about that at all. Mm. You know? because um, that, to, me, to me, the bigger issue, frankly, is corruption. 
Mm, uh, exactly. that, that I think is a far more valid argument. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, do do they want a big a big mega project in order to do what they did at Madupi and, mm. and build something build something that is inadequate and end up um, you know benefiting a whole lot of friends and family? Well, sure, but why wouldn't that happen with 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 renewable uh, mm. IPPs? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So, no, so I don't see I don't see that as a as a reason to oppose nuclear um, in particular. It, it, it's just using it in order to to bolster to to bolster your your position. No. I mean, what I thought was quite funny, I have to admit, was the the complaint by some of the uh, uh, environmental uh, bodies to complain about the fact that the only the only Entities who's, who are benefiting from a nuclear building, uh, from the building a nuclear plant would be, uh, vested interests in the, in the industry. Now, <laughs> I, I would have thought that the new, from my knowledge of the renewables industry, it's the biggest vested interest industry in the world. Um, well, probably overstating it a bit, but not by much. Um, uh, renewables are exactly the same. You know, there's a, there's a very, very powerful green industry. Um, that lobbies consistently for things like carbon taxes and, and, you know, subsidies and, and who knows what other regulations to benefit them, right? And people get very rich off that, you know. I mean, no, Al, Al, Al Gore's $300 million didn't come from nowhere. <laughs> no, no, he was, he, he was certainly the original. Um, the, what, can you talk to me a bit about, um, the, what, how long do, Generally, do um, solar voltaic plants and and wind farms last? And what do you do? What can you do with the material that is left over that is no longer functional? Oh, you could poison large tracts of land with that material. Um, Environment is something you two worry about. Their life expectancy. Yeah, people people don't see that. You know, they don't see how they how solar panels get built. You know, they don't look at the rare earth mines in China, you know, where they, they basically strip vast, uh, vast territories of, of, of soil and, you know, process them to, to get the rare earth minerals that you need to produce, um, solar panels and, and, and even these, these windmills. Um, so there's a lot of environmental impact that you don't see. The disposal is also a big issue because you've got all sorts of toxic materials in these things. They only last for about 20 years. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so and, that, and that's really not long. I mean, mm. new coal build lasts about 50 years. Uh, new nuclear lasts about 60 years. Mm. Um, Kuburg has a lifespan of 40 years, which is uh, it will reach in 2024. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there are plans to extend that by another 20 years, so it will then also have a lifespan of 60 years. Um, so you basically need to, you know, <laughs> and then there we go. Get back to the original cost problem again. Um, Yes, building new nuclear, building new renewables might be uh, initially cheaper than building new coal or new nuclear, but you need to build them three times over mm, mm. in order to match the lifespan of nuclear or coal. Mm. Um, yeah, I, I, I mean, I've got an interesting personal experience. Uh, 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 one of my one of my sons uh, worked on a project for a number of years in which he monitored the. The bat populations on around wind farms, um, for exactly the reason that they threaten to, they do threaten to do so much damage to bat, to the bat populations and therefore to cultivation and agriculture. Um, and so they spent a lot of time ga- ga- gathering information and assessing whether 
perhaps a farm couldn't be built or, or uh, pylons, sorry, not pylons, uh, but um, rotors had to be moved because of the extent to which the damage was too great to, to, to be justified because it would have a huge impact on the, on the agriculture around the region. And surely that, that also has to do with the fact that you're dealing with, with, um, build that has to be done over large areas that both wind and, and solar. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's the thing that they take up huge, uh, vast tracts of land. Um, you know, with solar, you, you're putting a whole lot of land under shade. Now, I can't imagine that shading, uh, you know, vast areas could be at all good for the environment. Um, you know, with wind farms, you got the problem with birds and bats. Um, and, and they're also huge, you know. I mean, if you look, <laughs> go to Jeffrey's Bay. Go and look at what that place looks like. Right? At night, the sky is lit up with little red lights because of mm-hmm. the, um, because, you know, that sit on top of all those wind farms around Jeffrey's Bay. Right, of course. It's, it's, it's completely ruined. It's completely ruined the view. Now, you know, the, and, then they, and then they go and complain about a nuclear reactor that would be put at a, a taste punt, which is frankly very far from anywhere and wouldn't be visible from anywhere. Mm. Um, you know, it, 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 and you can, you can put a nuclear reactor on the land the size of a postage, postage stamp. Mm. Mm, so from exactly. that perspective, the impact is far less. I just want to go back to something you said earlier about, about, um, benefiting the nuclear industry only. Mm. I think that, that is a very strange way to look at any economic development. You know, that's like saying that a supermarket only benefits the owner of the supermarket. Mm. Uh, no, it doesn't. Right? It benefits me and you because we don't have to travel further to go to the next supermarket over. We get more competition. We get price competition. So, you know, just like the same way, a nuclear plant benefits everyone who uses the electricity from that nuclear plant, and that is everyone in this country. Mm. So the notion the notion that it only benefits the owners is nonsense. If it didn't benefit anyone else, there would then, be the no owners, th- then the owners couldn't, get the, couldn't generate profit, and there would exactly. be no point in building it in the first place. Exactly. IFM 101.9 megahertz of life. Eva, I just like your comment on the fact that we are really, we are really uh, reaping the whirlwind of the fact that at least as early as 1999, the government was aware that things had to change in, in terms of our energy production. Things were going to come, have to come out of commission. Things would have to have to be built. Um, they'd have to look at different energy sources. And many years went by where nothing was done, and then Madupi and Kusile were chosen, huge overruns, um, sabotage, corruption, everything imaginably bad could have happened. How does one manage a, a big a, a big build such as something like a nuclear station, a nuclear power station, and minimize the sort of dreadful management we saw with a place like Madupi? Look, any, in any big project, you're going to have those sorts of risks. Um, the, I actually prefer nuclear to, to coal, uh, besides for the environmental reasons. I mean, I, I dislike coal. I, mm. I really dislike coal pollution. Um, but, but from a project perspective, I prefer nuclear simply because um, with, with nuclear, the vendors are far more involved. Mm. Uh, 
And they have, they are very, very sensitive to the public image of nuclear power. There's a lot of vendor-led activity in a nuclear power build. Um, they are very aware of, of the reputation of going over budget and going over, over deadlines. Um, and, and they've actually done quite well. I haven't got the, the examples right in front of me right now, but they have done quite well with recent nuclear builds in China in getting them uh, built on time and on budget. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that that is where we need to look. We need to look for, for sort of vendor guarantees that these things can be built on time and on budget. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I think the, the the mistake the government made, but it, it would be in line with the whole sort of skullduggerous uh, um, approach to building Madupe, is the fact that it it chose to manage, project manage the entire process and without the, the necessary skills to do it. Yeah, you know it also uh, there's a whole there's a problem in some of these contracts in that in that the 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 risk seems to fall only on the government. Mm. Uh, or only on ESCOM. You know, there's, there's never consequences for people, for late delivery and, mm. and for, you know, for delivering boilers that explode. And, yes. You know, it, I would have thought, you know, if I, if I was contracted to the government and I, I was producing a widget for them and that widget didn't work or I couldn't deliver it on time or I couldn't deliver enough of them, that there would be penalties, mm. you know, that I would end up having to pay the, the, the the, the cost, the extra cost that that uh, um, that the government incurs, mm. and yeah. that never seems to happen with these big projects. Um, and I've seen that with with our train, with you know a lot of these big civil engineering projects that the government gets involved in. All of the risk seems to land on the government, and mm. we end up the taxpayers end up paying more and more mm. and more um, just to make up for for other people's incompetence. Now, mm. you know that's really not how it should happen. There should mm. be far more far tighter um, risk controls uh, in effect and, and penalize, penalize the vendors and the, and the, and the, and the, the subcontractors um, if they don't deliver. That's, mm. It's as simple as that. That's what happens in the private sector. Why should I, was just, like that? <laughs> I was just going to say, that's what happens in the real world. Which brings, us to, which brings us to another argument. All of this really should be happening in the private sector, shouldn't mm. it? Of course. You know, all, of these, all of these generation facilities ought to be in the private sector. They ought to compete on price for delivering uh, electricity to ESCOM, you know, ESCOM should once a year or once every few months ask for bids for for for, uh, for supplying electricity, and then we get the benefit of price competition in the market as well. Mm-hmm. You know, so that's yeah. really how it, how it ought to work. Of course, of course. Uh, if I thank you very very much for joining us, um, I relish the opportunity to clarify. The bad name and unjustified name given to to nuclear energy. I think the answer does lie there. Cost notwithstanding, cost of building notwithstanding. And I uh, hope to have you back uh, on another enlightening subject sooner rather than later. Yeah, thanks, thanks, Sarah. And, and yeah, I think the dream of a green, emission-free world uh, is possible um, with nuclear energy. <laughs> that is a great last pun. Hi FM, your station of choice since 2008. Um, one thing I didn't get to discuss with Evo is the fact that because of the Germans' decision-making after Fukushima, um, which seems to be a combination of sort of fantasy fear and, you know, uh, trying to satisfy the Green Lobby, who were in government uh, with uh, Angela Merkel's uh, party, 
is part of what Germany is relying on is those gas pipelines from Russia uh, because Russia is rich in natural gas and Germany obviously needs the gas, wants the gas for, for power. And it is causing a huge diplomatic problem because the United States has expressed its considerable disapproval and is trying, has been trying to block the building of those pipelines uh, that come through you, the Ukraine to Germany. And it seems like it's it's a it's a horrible co- a series of consequences that arose from that original decision because um, Germany had more than enough safe nuclear power together with it, with its uh, renewables to happily continue well into the future um, safely and and productively and with that decision it's put itself at the mercy of other people's nuclear other people's dirty coal other people's um, Yes, and the fact that nuclear—sorry, uh, the fact that renewables—is not always reliable enough, and that is just in the nature of renewables. And so it's creating a potential geopolitical crisis, uh, particularly given the frayed, fraying, variable relations between the West and Russia, and particularly between America and Russia. So the consequences of having been, quote, frightened off, close quote, by nuclear are potentially very, very, very much bigger than having retained the nuclear in the first place. It also has a a potential effect on the productivity of Germany as an economy and its ability to, it's no, you know, its strength lies in its manufacturing and it's having to grab energy from a variety of sources in order to keep up what is best known about about Germany and to keep its economy strong. So it's a very, very vexed subject which I can only barely touch on. Um, there may be aspects of it we will look at in in more detail, but I'm usually very good at, uh, at at explaining why he believes things are or should be the way they are or should be. So at that point, I'm going to leave it for this week and uh, we'll come back to, I guess, the energy of our local day-to-day politics. Um, It won't be in a week's time because I think I am affected on the 7th by one of those holidays. But uh, I think it will be the week after. And in in the meantime, please read dailyfriend.co.za and shana tova to you all.